following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. Many of you are familiar with at least the name Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong, um, I think, is this incredible case study in how you move from anonymity to fame to infamy. If you know the story of Lance Armstrong, he was a, he was a professional cyclist. Very, very good in America as an American cyclist. If you know the cycling world, that doesn't mean much. He was, he was good for an American, um, but didn't really do anything particularly special until um, partway through his career, he, he uh, was diagnosed with cancer. He fought cancer, cancer that had spread to his brain. Um, he fought it, he beat it, and he came back to cycling. Not just coming back to the level he was, but being even better than he was before cancer. And so he became this, this famous figure for, for fighting and, and, and beating cancer. But not just that, he came back and won the Tour de France, which is one of the most difficult, challenging acts of physical endurance known to mankind. And he won it not just once, but he won it seven times in a row. This is the biggest cycling race in the world. He was relentless as a competitor. And so he garnered this legendary status. He even built what some of you may know, the Livestrong brand. And Livestrong became bigger than even cycling. It became this world empire. And Lance Armstrong was the top of the world. Until, until his steroid abuse and use came to light. And overnight, Lance Armstrong went from famous world beater to infamy. His reputation and his legacy were ruined overnight. A legacy can be built on what we do, but it can only be sustained by who we are. Today's passage in Genesis 36, we're going to look at it. And as you look at this passage, it may appear on the surface to be an odd Father's Day choice. But in actuality, it is a fantastic picture of how we build a godly, faithful legacy. And especially on this Father's Day, for you fathers, this is how we build and leave a legacy. But this applies as well to our mothers, to our grandparents, to our friends, our teachers, our coaches, our mentors. That's because this chapter is going to present us with a comparison between worldly influence and godly influence. And the question we're going to be asked, the question we are going to face, be faced with from this passage is this. What will be the basis for our influence and our legacy in the lives of those around us? So I ask you now, if you have not yet, turn to Genesis chapter 36 while I put this on my microphone.
Okay, hopefully that works a little better. Genesis chapter 36 through 37 verse 1. If you look at this passage just on the surface, again, what you get is you look through it and you're like, there are a whole bunch of names here. What in the world is going on? And if we're honest with ourselves, and we're honest even from a theological perspective, a vast majority of the names in this chapter are absolutely meaningless and useless to you. Right? So if you've ever read this part, read this chapter of the Bible, you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. That's okay. Because that's kind of what you get to when you read all of these names. But what we're going to see is the significance of this chapter is not a significance based on the names in the chapter. The significance is going to come from the structure of the chapter. So before we talk about what this has to teach us today, we're going to just walk through this chapter and, and then we'll come back and, and discuss the lessons we learned from it. Okay, so when we look at this, this chapter of the Bible, what I want you to see are there are five distinct sections within this whole list of names. And these five distinct sections are going to give us the structure and the meaning and the purpose. And the first section is this. If you're a note taker, write this down. Section one, verses one through eight, Esau's family. Section one, verses one through eight, Esau's family. I'm going to read this. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, so don't worry. I'm just going to read this section for now. Then we'll hit the highlights on the other ones. But starting in chapter 36, verses 1 through 8, it says, These are the family records of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanite women. Adah, daughter of Elon the Hethite, Aholabama, daughter of Anah, the granddaughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basmath, daughter of Ishmael and sister of Nebaioth. Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, Basmath bore Reuel, and Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the sons who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Esau took his wives, sons, daughters, and all the people of his household, as well as his herds, all his livestock, and all the property he had acquired in Canaan. He went to a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too many for them to live together, and because of their herds, the land where they stayed could not support them. So Esau, that is Edom, lived in the mountains of Seir. Okay, so section one, verses one through eight, we get Esau's family. We're shown his three wives and his five daughters, or three wives, five sons, and his daughters, and an accumulation of wealth. Now, Esau probably had many more wives than just three. If we study the course of his life, we study what we see earlier in this, this book, we see that he probably had more than three wives, but these would have been the most significant to him. The most important name, if you want to look at that list of names of his wives and, and sons, the most important name to remember, and we're going to come back to this, is Aholabama from, from verse 2. Okay, but this section, verse 1 through 8, Esau's family. Okay, that brings us to section 2, verses 9 through 19, where we're going to see the chiefs of Edom. Okay, the chiefs of Edom. This starts in verse 9 where it says, These are the family records of Esau, father of the Edomites in the mountains of Seir. Here we're going to see over the next 9 or 10 verses <clears throat> the rulers of Esau's family. It's just going to give the names of, of this person was born to this person, this poor person was born to this person, and on and on and on. But it's all going to expand out from verses 1 through 8. 
right? his wives and his sons. Now, verse 9 through 19 said, all of those sons had sons, and their sons had sons, and their sons had sons, and all of these people became the rulers of the people of Edom. Okay, why is that important? Because it's showing us in these verses that Esau becomes not just a father and not just a grandfather or a great-grandfather. He becomes kind of the overlord, the head of this nation of people. This whole <clears throat> gathering of this nation comes from Esau. And now he's got rulers under him and rulers under them and rulers under them. So, Esau's family. Number two, the chiefs of Edom. Then in verse 20 through verse 30, we're going to see what are called the chiefs of Seir. Okay, Seir is this place right, where Esau and his family left Canaan and settled in Seir. And here we get the list of sons of Seir, a man, and the chiefs that followed him. The reason this place is called Seir is because of this man. And, and as you read through the list of names, and again, I'm not going to make you read through the list of names, don't worry. But if you were to read through the list of names, you would get down to verse 25. And in verse 25, we're going to see a significant name here. Genesis 36, verse 25 said, These are the children of Anah, Deshan, and Aholabama. Esau's wife. Okay, here's why this is significant. Esau has now married into the people of Seir. So he's becoming the head of this great nation. He does it by marrying into the people of Seir. So he moves into this place. He's now become not just the leader of his family, but the leader of these other families. His power, his influence, it's all growing. It's expanding exponentially with every generation. So we've got Esau's family. We've got the chiefs of Edom. We've got the chiefs of Seir. Then in verse 31 through 39, we get the kings of Edom. Okay, and in this section... We're given a list of, of eight different kings who ruled over the land of Edom, who ruled over Esau's people. Now, we can talk about how this relates, time, how this works in the timeline of everything, but, but that's not really the focus. The focus comes when we get down and when we start in verse 31. Verse 31 says, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over Israel. Okay, now, Israel comes into the picture of this. Well, why mention Israel, right? Isn't this about Esau? Israel is Jacob, Esau's twin brother. We've already seen a lot of Jacob. We've spent the last couple of months studying the life of Jacob. So what is, why does is Israel appear here? Because this fact that he's talking about the kings of Edom is giving us a comparison. Esau, his people have kings and rulers. Israel has no king. Esau is, by all human standards, ahead of the game when compared to Israel. So, let's go through it again. Esau's family, chiefs of Edom, chiefs of Seir, kings of Edom. Then in verse 40 through 43, we get the fifth section here, which is Esau's legacy. Esau's legacy. In verses 40 through 43, we're going to see 11 more chiefs that descend directly from Esau. 
Again, Esau is becoming more and more powerful, more and more influential. He is now the founder and leader of a great nation of people. This does a couple of things. First, it shows us the fulfillment of the prophecy that was given to his mother. If you remember all the way back in Genesis 25, verse 23, Jacob and Esau's mother had a a difficult time with her pregnancy, and she felt her two sons fighting within her womb. And the prophecy was, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. And now we see this fulfilled. They're separated. Esau moves on. He separates from Jacob and lives in Seir. But he's becoming a great nation, a powerful people. And these leaders, these chiefs that come directly from Esau just fortify his strength and fortify his power. Now, this whole passage actually finds its completion in chapter 37, verse 1. In chapter 37, verse 1, it says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. Okay, this is a super short verse, but super important to understanding the whole chapter of 36. Because we've been seeing how Esau did what he thought was best for his flocks, what was best for his herds, what was best for his family. He went to Seir. He married into the family of Seir. He developed this strength, this power. He continued to to become more and more powerful, more and more influential. And what did Jacob do? He stayed in Canaan. He stayed where God had called him to be. Esau expanded his kingdom and power. Jacob stayed in Canaan, trusting in God's promises. This is not the most exciting chapter of the Bible. You with me? This is not the most exciting chapter of the Bible. But from this list of names, chiefs, kings, and rulers, we are pointed to two sets of related concepts. That, that if we are going to be a people who leave a lasting, godly, faithful legacy, we must understand these two concepts that are drawn from this list of names, chiefs, kings, and rulers. The first is this, and looking at this chapter and looking at everything that comes out of this chapter, we must distinguish blessings from success. We must distinguish blessings from success. See, we tend to conflate these two terms. We tend to think, when God blesses me, then I am successful. And when we say that, if we're honest, what we typically mean is, when God blesses me, then I am healthy, I'm wealthy, and I'm prosperous. Now, we wouldn't say that because we know better than to fall into that trap of heresy, right? I would never say that God's blessing brings me health, wealth, and prosperity. I know better. But if I'm honest, if I go, God's blessed me, I must be healthy, have enough money, be doing well. The problem with that kind of definition is this. If I believe that, that Blessing and success are the same thing. Blessing and health, wealth, and prosperity are the same thing. Then I have to believe, I necessarily have to believe 
that if I am not healthy, if I am not wealthy, and if I am not prosperous, then God has abandoned me. That's where we have to go if that's our definition. Now, before you get the wrong idea, let me just say, I do believe that when God blesses me, I am successful. I believe that with all of my heart. But to believe that, we have to have a proper definition of success. I heard a story one time of a, a, a guy who grew up in England, and he came to the States, and he married an American wife. And they went back to visit his family for some holiday or something, and they were at this dinner party, and they had a whole conversation with this lady who lived down the street from, from this guy's parents. And they had this whole conversation. This lady was talking about how much she loved her new flat, how great this new flat was, how it was just perfect for her. And as they walked away from the conversation, the husband and wife realized they had two totally different conversations. Because the wife was thinking they were talking about shoes. She was talking about her new flat. The British husband thought she was talking about an apartment. Two very different conversations. See, in order to have a conversation that makes sense, you have to have the same definition. You have to be on the same page. And I believe that when God blesses us, we are successful. But God's definition of blessing is not that everything would go smoothly for us. It's not that we would have enough money to buy all the toys that we want. It's not that we would be moving up the ladder of success in our career. It's not that we would be putting away enough money for retirement. It's not that we wouldn't suffer any affliction. It's not even that our children would be happy. Now, if God gives you those things, praise the Lord. That's a great thing. Don't ever feel bad about God allowing you success. But those are not markers of blessing. They are markers of success, and those are two different things. Success is based on outcomes. Success is based on results. Blessing is based on input. We can be successful. We can have great outcomes in this life without being faithful to Jesus, without having proper input, right? Many wicked and faithless people succeed when those of the Christian faith seem to lag behind. In Psalm 73, Asaph uh, says in in verses 3 through 5, For I envied the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Asaph sees the fact that the wicked can be successful in this life. But remember what he says? He says they have an easy time when? Until they die. He says they are not blessed. They may be successful, but they are not blessed. So if we want to leave in this life, if we want to live in a way that leaves a godly, faith-filled legacy in our wake, we must be a people who are focused on blessing and not success. We're to identify and celebrate the blessings that God gives us. And that means we have to be a people who focus on what we have, not what we want. Focus on the opportunities that God sets before us, not achieving something special in the work. We're to be focused on loving and serving others, not positioning ourselves to receive. We're to be a people who focus on the blessing, not the achievement of success. I love in Mark chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. 
you may know this passage. It's the, the baptism of Jesus as he begins his earthly ministry. Verse 10 and 11 says this. Jesus is, is baptized and it says, As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Here's the question. Here's the question. God says, Jesus, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. What has Jesus done up to this point? What miracle has he done? What sacrifice has he made? He hasn't done anything. Now you could say, well, Jonathan, yeah, but God knows what he's going to do. Sure, fine, but he hasn't done anything yet. God's love and pleasure in his son is not about what Jesus has done. It's about who Jesus is. Jesus is blessed not because he's been successful, but because he trusts his father. You and I are blessed not when we are successful, not when we achieve. Those things are great, right? Again, don't ever apologize for being successful or achieving or doing well. It's a great thing. But that's not the mark of blessing. The mark of blessing is that we understand, we trust, and we love the Father because he has loved us and given us salvation in Jesus Christ. That is blessing. It is blessing that Jesus took our place, that he was born and lived perfectly so that he could be the sacrificial lamb taking our place on the cross. It is a blessing that he bled and died, not because he sinned, but because you and I sinned. It is a blessing that he rose from the dead, leaving an empty tomb behind him so that we do not have to fear death. It is a blessing that he delivers us from our sin, from our depravity, and to our perfect heavenly father. It is a blessing that we get to live the rest of this life filled with and overflowing with the Holy Spirit who leads us, who guides us, who equips us, who prepares us, who sends us out into mission to love and serve the world around us with the love, grace, and mercy of God the Father. That is a blessing. It's not achievement. It's who we are in Christ. If we want to leave a godly, faith-filled legacy, we must be a people who focus on blessing, not success. Do we tend to think of our lives, of our legacy, in terms of successful outcomes or God's blessed input? We must distinguish blessings from success. Our second guideline we draw from this passage is that if we are going to leave a faithful legacy, we must distinguish obedience from control. We must distinguish obedience from control. You can look at the life of, of Jacob and Esau. Esau took control of his life. He built this kingdom of, of power. But it wasn't a life of obedience. It was a life of his success, his achievement. Jacob, on the other hand, when this story closes, has only his family under his headship. Far from the great nation God planned, right? God said, I'm going to use your family. I'm going to bless the whole world. Now, Jacob, stay in Canaan with just your family. It'll be fine. But Jacob is obedient. He's right where God wants him to be so that God can eventually bless the world through Israel. We don't typically confuse the terms control and obedience to the same degree as we do success or blessing. But I think we probably do it more than we realize. 
We do this when we limit our obedience to the things we like or the things we want or the things we think are acceptable. Right? I obediently read my Bible if, if I have time. I obediently spend time in prayer right before bed or before I eat. I obediently forgive others when I feel like they've earned it or they deserve it. I obediently love my neighbor. I obediently love my neighbor as long as they don't mow the lawn too early on Saturday morning. I obediently fill in the blank as long as conditions A, B, and C are met. All the things I talked about, those are good acts of obedience, but if they're done on our terms, they're not obedient. It's control. It's not obedience. Jacob's obedience didn't deliver the way he probably expected that it would. He was going to be the great nation. He was going to be the one through whom God blessed the entire world. But here he is back at the same place where he started, right where God called him to be with a small family compared to Esau. And while wealthy, he still had a very limited influence on the world. But he knew something better. He knew that obedience trumps control. Every time. Obedience trumps control. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, the religious leaders of the Israelites come and they see Jesus eating with the, the tax collectors and the sinners. And, and, and they, they say to, to Jesus' disciples, they're like, oh, well, why, does, why does your rabbi think it's okay to eat with these people? They think they can just ask the disciples, but of course Jesus is like, guys, I know what you're saying. I know it before you said it. So Jesus turns to him. If you remember in, in chapter 9, verse 13 of Matthew, he quotes the book of Hosea. And Jesus says to these guys, and I love this response because he's not mean, but he's pretty harsh with them. He walks that line so perfectly. He says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Right? Listen, guys, I know what you're thinking. Figure this out and then we'll talk. Go find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. See, what Jesus was saying is, hey, religious leaders of Israel, you guys do the sacrifice as well. You do the acts of service. You go to church. You do all the right things. You look on the outside. That's fine. Sacrificing your time and your energy, that's all fine. He says, but I want you to do is have my heart he says, that's what's most important to me is that you have my heart, this heart of mercy, this heart of forgiveness, this heart of love and grace. He says, I want mercy. I want your heart. Your actions will follow your heart. So let's get the heart right first. See, obedience looks beyond our ability to control the outcome or to even see an outcome at all. That's because obedience isn't about a specific action. Again, the religious leaders of Israel were really good at specific actions, but they failed to have the heart of Christ. Because obedience, following the Lord, is not about the action. It's about, it's about the state of our hearts, a heart that dictates the action. In Ephesians chapter 6, Verses 5 through 8, the Apostle Paul writes, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. 
Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. The key that you should pick up from those verses is what, what he says twice, from your heart. From your heart. Why do we do what we do? Is it because we're trying to control what other people think of us? How we look? Maybe even how we feel? Or is our heart chasing after Christ? Sometimes that's going to lead us to places where we look at it and we go, uh, God, this doesn't make any sense at all. I don't want anything to do with this. And he's going to go, fine. But where's your heart? Are you seeking obedient action or are we seeking to control things so that we are happy, wealthy, healthy, and prosperous? See, this true obedience from the heart is never going to come from our best logical thinking. It's never going to come from great theological understanding. Those things are nice. They're great. I'm not saying don't try to understand theology and don't try to understand the Lord and don't seek any of that stuff. But a heart after Christ only comes when we begin to seek and fully grasp the depth of the gospel. It's only when we realize how broken and flawed and fallen we are. So much so that we become just overwhelmed with gratitude at the fact that God has ever seen fit to know us and love us and redeem us and welcome us into his family. When we begin to understand that, we begin to have hearts that seek not just to do the right thing, but hearts that seek the Lord with all that we have and all that we are? Are we focused on how we can control situations? Or are we focused in every single moment of our life in obedient service to the heart of Jesus Christ? If we want to leave a lasting, meaningful, faith-filled legacy, as we seek to display and share our trust in the Lord's goodness with our spouses, with our children, with our grandchildren, with our nieces, our nephews, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, with the rest of the world, then we must have the proper groundwork set for how we define the fruitfulness of our lives and of our faith. We must be able to distinguish between simple success and satisfying blessings. We must be able to distinguish between calculated control and unconditional obedience with a focus and purposeful distinction drawn. We can move forward with every endeavor of our lives in such a way that God is glorified. So for today, fathers and the rest of our church family, this is for all of us. But fathers, we need to be thinking about this because as fathers, there is a, a unique desire and a unique calling to legacy in our lives. I'm not saying nobody else has this, 
But you fathers know there's a unique draw and drive and calling from the Lord in terms of the legacy that we leave behind. May we seek to leave a lasting legacy. Not one built on our achievements or our activity, but one that is built on a legacy of faithfulness that every generation behind us can follow. A legacy built on the celebration of God's blessing and of the submission and surrender of every aspect of our lives to the love, the grace, and the mercy of Jesus Christ. May we leave a faith-filled, God-honoring legacy. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that We thank you that you have called us your children. We thank you that you have allowed us to call you Father, to call you perfect, holy, heavenly Father, who is reigning and ruling over all things in all places and at all times. And Lord, as we walk through this life, as we walk through the journey of this faith, this time that you have given us here on earth, we know that we are not called here to, to get saved and then sit on the sidelines and pray to Christ's return so we don't really have to do anything. You have called us to know you and love you and serve you and to love and serve every single person you have put around us in our lives. You have called us to a mission and a purpose. And Lord, we want to do that with such fervor, such passion, that there is no doubt to our friends, our family members, to our children, to the next generation. There is no doubt that we know exactly who you are and that we celebrate your blessings not because it gives us everything we want, but because it gives us everything we need and so much more than we could ever hope for. Lord, may we be a people who leave that kind of legacy, not for our sakes, but for the glory and the honor of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you. We praise you and we love you. And in your great and your awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.